Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 212 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Ruth Stone Street. She graduated from Mississippi State College for Women, now Mississippi University for Women, with bachelor's and master's degrees in speech pathology and a minor in psychology. Her PhD is from Southern Illinois University with an emphasis on infant toddler preschool communication disorders with a cognate and rehabilitation administration. Her experiences in the field have impacted children and parents in Kentucky, Mississippi, Illinois, Michigan, and Georgia. She has presented to various state, regional, and national organizations on a variety of topics relating to programming, evaluation, and intervention for the pediatric population. She is an ASHA Fellow, a National Academies of Practice Fellow, Professor Emerita, and Board Certified Specialty in Child Language, and has served on several committees for ASHA. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Ruth. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you. It's exciting. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Dr. Ruth Stone Street, and I'm, um, I guess you could call me a seasoned SLP, rather than an old SLP, I guess I could call myself seasoned. Uh, A little bit about my bio, I grew up in Western Kentucky on a family farm, and because my parents were both teachers and my dad was a coach, I refused to go to school in the state of Kentucky because I knew that whatever I did, if I crossed the street the wrong way, my daddy would hear about it before I ever got to tell him. 
So I went to Mississippi State College for Women, which is now Mississippi University for Women, for both my bachelor's and my master's. My bachelor's is in uh, speech and drama and, at that time, speech therapy. My master's is in speech pathology, all with a minor in psychology. And, of course, at that time, uh, going through grad school, I had a kind of a philosophy that I wanted an MS after my name before I wanted an MRS in front of my name. There you go. Right before I graduated, I met this guy uh, from Mississippi who was a golf pro in Michigan, of all places. <laughs> and so after we married, we moved um, we moved to Michigan. And I was very fortunate to have some wonderful experiences uh, with adults, at first with adults with developmental disabilities who were being deinstitutionalized at that time and being placed back into their uh, biological homes, a foster home, a group home, or a nursing home, and being able to devise programs uh, and trainings for the persons that would be their caregivers. Um, and then I was offered uh, a job at uh, Macomb Intermediate School District working with the zero to five-year-olds, which I had always wanted to work with the babies and was very interested in syndromes and oral facial anomalies. Uh, and at that time, it wasn't really called pediatric feeding, but we were doing some things, early things in that program, the Macomb Infant Preschool Program with children who had feeding difficulties. So I learned a lot from there, uh, had wonderful experiences there, and then uh, moved, got a job and moved to Georgia, to Valdosta State University, where I am now a professor emerita. But they uh, asked me to come back and teach a couple of courses. So they now call me retired but rehired. There you go. There you go. That's just a little brief summary about me and my family. And I love it. I love it. Yes. I, I love your rich history of experiences, Ruth. Career. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, yeah. And, and so much I'd love to talk about today, but I think, you know, I've gotten to know you a little bit over the last few months and, you know, we have mutual admiration for wonderful Vince Clark, but yeah, I, I just, I love sort of, you've been able to watch our, our profession and our field unfold. Basically, you've been able to watch it advance into all of these different fields and, and even watch these different conditions and syndromes develop. And, you know, now we're working with things that we never used to work with before or things that, you know, didn't even exist. So, you know, I love, I, I, was excited to have you on because I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, how our field has evolved and how important it is for us to now keep up with, you know, the different conditions that we treat with swallowing, with feeding. Yeah. Well, I can go back a little ways on that. And remember when it was just the Speech and Hearing Association. Language had nothing to do with our, with our title, with our national title, a national organization, even before it became American Speech Language Hearing Association. And I remember as a grad student, I was asked to be on a panel at the University of Mississippi regarding language. And was it important to me as a grad student to know anything about language? And did I think that was important in the field? And I, I'm thinking, 
sure. You know, this is a crazy question for you to ask me. And it was a panel of different people from all over the state of Mississippi on um, language. What do we want to do with it? What do we think it needs to be in the title of our national association? And then I can also remember when people did not believe that babies could do anything. And it was like, what are you talking about? We have all these babies we're working with in our little clinic at the university, at the college, because we were the only clinic in the North Mississippi area at that time. So we drew a lot of people in from various areas and various counties in that in that northern Mississippi uh, area. And they were beginning to say, well, language really doesn't start until they have semantics and until they're verbal. So that was another kind of a controversy that we went through. Uh, and then all of a sudden in years, you know, in the years passed and we became part, we had part H, which is now part C of IDEA, which put in early intervention. And fortunately, uh, where I was working at that time in Michigan, Michigan was a birth mandate state and we had already been working with zero to three-year-olds prior to the initiation of Part C. Um, so I was very fortunate to be a part of writing interagency agreements and developing the countywide program for zero to threes. But we didn't, the challenge that we found for that was that we were already doing individual education plans. We had to figure out a way to to join an individual education plan with an individual family service plan. So we had different challenges than other people had with early intervention. Uh, but, uh, you know, I look at it now and I think, wow, you know, our field is totally evolving. It has always totally evolved and it will never continue not to totally evolve. And the information that you have in curricula now for students, for undergrads and graduates, even at the doctoral levels, at the clinical doctorate level and the research doctoral level, are courses that we never would have dreamed of having in the past. There's so much information that we need to know. And I often hear students and especially grad students saying, but I, but I don't feel like I'm ready to go out. There's too much more I need to learn. And I say we can only give you as much as we can, as much as the university will allow us to give you in a curriculum. But, yes, I agree. You have to keep up. You have to have those continuing education hours. And one of the things that I would love to see us advocate for in curricula with universities is some parts on pediatric feeding. It, we get a lot with adults and we try in many courses to integrate some of the pediatric feeding pieces into that curricula, but it's not as much as I would like to see. And it's, it's exciting to me that, that many of our neonatal intensive care units are now allowing interns to be able to come work in there to, to satisfy some of their graduate clinical hours. 
So, you know, looking at evolving from language to pediatric feeding to who knows what's going to be coming in the future. I mean, we're now looking uh, more with adults with Parkinson's and grants for Parkinson's. We're looking at ALS. We're looking at it from what I call we're looking at everything in our field from twinkle through wrinkle. Teach them. <laughs> but you have to keep up. Yeah, you have yeah. to keep up. Yeah. So so talk a little bit, Ruth, about how you've sort of fallen into the niche of, of pediatric feeding. Okay. Well, that's an that's kind of an interesting story, too, I think. Um, when I went to work at the Macomb Infant Preschool Program, we were selected. Um, our program consisted of uh, serving approximately 400-plus babies and their families per year, per school year. And we were chosen to be a replication study for Dr. Rona Alexander's neurodevelopmental treatment for feeding through the then-called Curative Workshop of Milwaukee. I think it's changed its name now to like the Curative Care Network or something, but it was a, a the Curative Workshop began early in 1919 and went through different changes. And it looks, it, it was a rehabilitation center and um, they had a lot of, at that time, uh, interdisciplinary persons working with the staff. But uh, Dr. Alexander was the one that came to us, chose us uh, to be her replication site. And so we were beginning to do pediatric feeding early on in the early, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And it was so fascinating to me because at that time, it was really looked at as an organic slash non-organic problem. And so most of what we were looking at was the neurodevelopmental treatment of it. And so we had, um, we call a transdisciplinary team. We had OT, PT, child psychology, child so- pediatric social worker, pediatric audiologist, a pediatric neurologist, a pediatric ENT, a pediatric physiatrist, a pediatric orthopedist, uh, plus, of course, the most important person, the parent. And we had all of us working together. And that's what I was so excited about because being able to learn from OTs and PTs and the rest of the team members, I really felt that that gave me as an SLP a real advantage on being able to look at different types of, of uh, children with syndromes that had pediatric feeding problems. They came to us. We went made home calls. They came to us. The parents were always there and always an integral part of that. And that's one of the reasons that we developed a program called Partnerships with Parents. Because, you know, if you if you look at it and you ask a parent, a parent might say to you, well, I only wish that speech pathologist had told me this. And then the speech-language pathologist said, well, I only wish the parent had told me this. Right. So we did, um, we surveyed 250 parents and 250 SLPs. And we said, what would, you know, what would you like a parent to be able to tell you? And then what would you like your SLP to be able to tell you? And we, and it went on down with a list of questions. And, you know, the interesting part about that is everybody was talking about the same thing. 
it was just the old adage. It was the lack of communication. So we looked at this and said, okay, let's have a parent training and let's have a training where fathers only can come. No moms, no females, no SLPs, nobody can come. They met once a week, I mean, once a month on a Saturday with their children. They'd go to breakfast and we had uh, one of our SLPs from another district was the facilitator for that group. So being able to use counseling skills, which are in our code of ethics, being able to work with parents, being able to work with a transdisciplinary team, which is now really what we're calling interprofessional practices, uh, are all just watching the growth of that uh, has been so exciting. And that's where I really developed an interest in pediatric feeding. Uh, we worked with children with oral facial anomalies, with syndrome disorders, uh, syndrome disorders that were very rare. Uh, and so the, those experiences really piqued my interest. And, it, you know, the, the pediatric feeding part has changed so much from that only organic part uh, because we now talk about the picky eaters and we talk about, uh, you know, more things. Oh, and when we were doing that, we were looking, we were learning about sensory motor through the OTs and the effects of that. We were learning about the effects of positioning from the PTs. So everything just gelled to, uh, to that. But I, I think the how that's evolving is so fascinating. And I, I've read a couple of things lately about, I think one of the things that really kind of spurred me recently has been an older article. It's called, it's, a, it's from um, the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology, I believe it is. But it's a January 2019 article that, talks now about a consensus definition from the World Health Organization on pediatric feeding and a conceptual framework. And I read that and I thought, oh, this is so cool. This just really verified some of the things that we're doing. And it, it verified that, yeah, we, it, we did have that gut level feeling about this. And you know what? It ended up being right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just the whole piece of it. And when I got so interested, especially after Rona Alexander was with us for a year uh, as the replication site, just looking at any book I could find on pre-feeding skills or anything by Joan Arvidson or Catherine Shaker or Rona Alexander or Suzanne Evans-Morris or Marsha Dunn-Klein, any of those where I was just fascinated to be able to read those things and try to integrate that information and have some takeaways that we could use in intervention. Yeah. So what what do you think, Ruth? What do you think, where do you think the field needs to go as far as pediatric feeding? You know, you mentioned that you wish that our classes or, you know, our dysphagia course or even a separate pediatric feeding course should be added to the curriculum. What specifically do you think needs to be covered at that point? I think more about there are things that are covered neurodevelopmentally in other classes, and I think we need to look at how we can integrate that neurodevelopment into those classes and into that piece of the curriculum. But I really would like to see more information given to students, graduate students particularly, 
on the workings and the interrelationships and the teams in the neonatal intensive care units, especially the more acute neonatal intensive care units. It's fortunate that there are several people that we know who have graduated from our program that are working in NICUs and are willing to come back and do seminars for our students. Uh, but I think that that, I think my experiences were not necessarily in the NICU at first. We were called in to see those babies because they would be coming to our program, but we were not a part of their daily therapy. We uh, were a part of talking to the parents and counseling parents, but we weren't really a part of the daily activities of that. And I think that students need to know much more about that before they can, before they graduate. It's just, like I said, everything's going to evolve. There's always going to be another study out about something that we need to know about. Uh, We just cannot be lax on our continuing education. Yeah. 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 I think, I I mean, I love that, that we really need to learn more about just starting out in the NICU. I, you know, I've talked about my son and his experience in the NICU and just had no SLP involvement at all there, you know, and so he's just had feeding issues ever since. And, you know, had we gotten intervention right away, would the course be different? You know, I like to think yes, but, you know, yeah. So, and I, I would like to think yes too. Yeah. 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 So, as I think we've seen it both ways, like your situation, but we've also seen it where they have started right away and where they have been able to progress too. So, I mean, we don't know, uh, if it's nature or nurture. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, or, or, or what it is, but, um, I'm a definite advocate, very big advocate for early intervention. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the other thing, too, I'm thinking about is um, one of the things that I think needs to be emphasized more to students, uh, and well, to anyone that's working uh, with this population, is that what are the ways that preemies communicate? Yeah, who knew? They spread their fingers, they grunt, they cry, they arch their backs. You know, they, we have all those things that preemies do as a way of communication, but we have to decide, is that just a reflex for something or is it really some communication? And I think parents need to be involved in that from the very beginning. They need to know what to look for. Uh, and so our counseling skills and what we're able to tell parents is crucial. Don't want to see parents get a huge packet of information to take home to read. I want it simple and I want to make sure that those parents understand what we're talking about and can demonstrate it to us. I had a parent one time tell me, you know, I was, I was cleaning out some drawers in my dresser and she said, we're going to sell some furniture. I was cleaning out some drawers and she said, you won't believe what I found at the very bottom of the last drawer in my dresser. She said it was about a one inch thick packet on feeding and what I needed to do with my baby. And she said, you know what? I never read it. I just got put in the drawer. She And I said, yeah, that was too much information. Yeah. I, I, I just remember, I mean, I came home with just like packets of like genetic reports and just stuff like that about my son. And I just 
part of me just didn't like, I had just so much PTSD from it that I couldn't even open that folder that talked about his diagnosis and all that stuff. Like I couldn't even bring myself to look at that. And I do remember, I think it was maybe last year, I found that whole stack of papers again too. And I started flipping through it now, you know, being five years later, but I did find some stuff that probably would have been helpful, but I just was so numb to the whole situation that I couldn't even bring myself to look at the papers. You know, I, I just, I, I say this all the time. I just wish we had an SLP that I could have called, you know, like, is this normal? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? But I just didn't even have that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was the one that, you know, I, oh, good. the counseling part of it is, is so important in all of what we do. But I think especially with the babies, because one of the first things that you will hear and I think they ask us a lot of questions because we are communication specialists and because we do listen well and and uh, talk to them and let them feel a part, but they feel that we're a part of their family. It, it's just so important not to overwhelm them and to say to them, you know, I don't know the answer to all of the questions you might ask me. But ask me and I'll find out. And I think it's important to tell them, I don't know. I don't know everything. And that we may agree and disagree on what's going to happen. But let's agree to disagree and work it out. Not be able to just say, I'm not going to do anything she says. Yeah, yeah. I think such a big thing, a big part of it too, is is just belief that, there is hope for that child. You know, I, I think there's nothing more discouraging than having a therapist or someone that you're relying on to help you in a situation to tell you, you know, oh, they're never going to eat or they're never going to walk. Or you know, I like, I just think that's so damaging because then you already lose that buy-in and you don't know that you don't know that you don't know that that's that child's outcome. So yeah, I, I just wish that SLPs could have a little more education in how to handle those situations. And, and despite what you think might happen, I don't think it's your place to, to dump that on the family. That's right. And I think it's important to say we're starting from today. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not going to talk about this past. We're starting from today and we have today to begin and who knows where we can go and to be enthusiastic about yep. it. Well, I agree with. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing, too, is that how we have to learn to respect the family's culture, especially when it comes to pediatric feeding, because we know feeding, it, you know, mealtime is the social time. Uh, it's, the, it's the time to be with family. Whatever that culture is, we need to know that. We need to know what's expected of that child or that family at mealtime. Because we don't want our child with the pediatric feeding problem to be excluded from the family during that time. If you're working with a child and the mom doesn't want that child to wear a bib, so what? That's what she wants. Then you don't. And even if she has to change that child during your feeding time, don't don't push your values onto somebody else. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I think that's, I mean, that's so hard. I I mean, I can speak to that situation, you know, every, 
every holiday is tough, to be honest, because we have to, you know, do we feed my son with everybody, which means I don't get to eat with everybody because I have to feed him, um, you know, or do I feed him before so that I can eat with everybody, but then that's not fair to him to sit, you know, outside. So, you know, it seems like somebody in the family is always trying to juggle, you know, you eat, I'll feed him, but that's not fair to him to have so many hands in his face. <laughs> but, but it's just, it's things that I, that people don't think about. I don't think you, you know, you don't realize these issues happen. You know, he needs to, we, we always have everybody over to our house for the holidays because, you know, he needs to be in a special feeding chair and I'm not going to throw that in the car to, you know, take it to somebody else's house. So there's just all these things that, that, you know, are, are things that you just don't think of either. And also, you know, I'll get off on the feeding chair tangent a minute. We, we have this chair now that actually folds up and is nice and it can go in the back of the car. But before we had this huge, ridiculous feeding chair, it was like the size of just like a huge industrial wheelchair for this little 30 pound child. Like, (laughs) and, and I mean, people don't, you know, therapists are like, Oh, this will be the best chair for him. But it takes up half the kitchen, you know, and, and it's really, it's, it's tough when you have, you know, family over and people wonder why they have to sit in this big, you know, ridiculous chair. So I think there's just so many things that I wish therapists would consider, you know, is this going to add value to the family or is it going to be more of a burden to have this tool be part of the family? I've heard that so many times. (laughs) And and, I feel like it's the first time I've said that out loud, Ruth. (laughs) No, but you know, I think again, that that's part of what your team needs to know, needs to be aware of. Uh, we always tried to do everything we could, our PT and our OT and, and with the SLP to position in a regular type high chair rather than because I've, I've seen those just, I mean, it takes up a whole it trunk. Does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you can't get anything else in it. And then it's so cumbersome to get out and put together and take in a house. And, you know, what is, what can we do? Can we put a, uh, some type of a tumble forms chair in a bigger high chair to to position. Or what can we do? I think that that's so important for a team to be able to ask, and that parent needs to be the main person on that team, and not be afraid to say, "I can't handle that," or "That's not going to work for me." What else can we try? Yeah, it's it's interesting because we've had some therapists that are very out of the box. You know, they think of all these creative, they'll take, you know, a typical high chair and add all sorts of things to it. So it adapts to him. But then we've also had others that want the fanciest, nicest, most expensive therapeutic tool, which is all well and good intentioned, but it's, it's a complete disaster in my house. Like... <laughs> Yeah. So I, if we could sort of merge the two, you know, I, I would love to have, you know, I would love to have the top of the line stuff, but if they somehow could design it to fit in an actual person's normal kitchen, uh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> so, somebody needs to do that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We need to find somebody, mm-hmm. some engineer or somebody that, know. that can help us. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, good, good tangent, Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> We can get on a lot more. We can, we can, we can. All right. It's important to know the difference between a syndrome, a sequence, and an association. And 
my example for an association would be what is now called charge syndrome. But years ago, well, even even when I was working in Michigan, um, it still was called charge association. And it's an association because let's say, for example, uh, a child went to a clinic or a pediatrician, a developmental pediatrician, and then on to a genetic clinic or whatever. And they noticed all of these different types of signs, not necessarily symptoms, but I would say signs, but they'd never seen it before. So then maybe six, 10 months, 12 months later, another child comes along with the same thing. And they're all kind of associated signs, but they don't really have a name for it yet because they don't know a whole lot about it. So it becomes whatever that is becomes an association. Charge in itself has um, all of the letters in the word charge are reasons for or signs or symptoms of that child. That's why it's called charge. So they're coloboma of the eye, cranial nerve problems, heart problems, atresia of the conae, renal, and and the, at that time they said retardation problems, and ear anomalies. So that became, the name of that became charge because of all the associated not anomalies. It didn't become a syndrome until later on, until they had so many people that were uh, found to have those similar signs. And then if you look at a sequence, it's a little different because a sequence is caused by something in development that occurs that causes all the other problems in that particular child. My example for that could be Pierre Robin syndrome, where at nine weeks, the tongue should drop and the palate should be able to start forming, the hard palate start forming and soft palate. But at nine weeks, that tongue doesn't drop. So that palate can't form. And then the mandible becomes recessed. So that one thing that happens on the sequence was that the tongue didn't drop at nine weeks and everything else that happened after that was a result of that one particular problem in development. And then you get to a syndrome, and that's caused by genetically or chromosomally. It's caused by one sim- one single problem. Okay, and um, I think it's important to know those things and to know that uh, even though it's a syndrome, a sequence, or an association, there's always something that we can do. There's always some type of intervention that we can do uh, with any of those. I don't look many times at names of things. I look at what that child can do. Yep. I'm not going to concentrate on, oh, well, that, that child has, um, that child has Down syndrome and he's probably never going to do anything else. Well, we know that that's not true. Right. right. No. Um, so you focus on the behaviors that you're seeing. You focus on the observations you have, and you don't necessarily focus on the name. And I think we get stuck many times on a name, and that interferes with what you want to do for intervention. 
I um yeah, when my when my son was born, they suspected they suspected Down syndrome, but they knew it wasn't Down syndrome, but they suspected it would be similar to Down syndrome. And just, you know, this rare chromosomal abnormality, I think at the time he was born, there was seven cases. Now I believe there's about 20 cases. But the reality is, is exactly what you said. There's not enough cases to give it this fancy name yet. So it's the first question people always ask me. Well, what's the name of it? What syndrome does he have? He does. It doesn't come with a, we didn't get a fancy name yet. Maybe someday we will. But at this point, we don't. But then the tough part, too, is, you know, we had a wonderful um, neonatologist when he was in the NICU. And she basically just said of, of these kids that have this specific chromosomal abnormality, some are very sick, some are on, you know, vents and trachs, and some grow up to work, work wonderful, you know, have wonderful lives, have work jobs. My gosh, I can't get the words out I'm trying to say. Um, so she said, you know, the, the spectrum is very wide, so I don't know what to tell you how he's going to end up. You know, and I think that's something that I really cling to is nobody knows, you know, so when therapists ask me, well, you know, what's his prognosis? I'm like, what do you, why does that matter? His prognosis is get to work. Like, (laughs) that's right. So (laughs) exactly. And that's what I said. I don't concentrate on that at all. I want to make sure that we are making the most of what we have and trying to scaffold and get to a zone of proximal development (laughs) where they can learn a little bit more each day. And some, for example, in some children, I think with Down syndrome, people are, are, are readily, want to readily give up on some of that and say, oh, he's just going to plateau and we can't do anything else. But I see this, I, I see good um, progress. And then I see an side of a plateau. Okay, so if you have a plateau for four or six months, then all of a sudden you see it go up again. And I think in many syndromes and and sequences and maybe some associations, that's typical. So don't give up when you see a plateau. There's always something that may occur. I think they need time to process it. I don't want to give up. There's always some type of maintenance that I think we can do, even with older adults with developmental disabilities. If we don't, if we don't help them keep their skills, uh, then they might not be able to do some type of work that they're doing, but we have to keep those skills. We need to maintain it. I love it, Ruth. And I think uh, some universities do have counseling and uh, we were counseling and collaboration in speech language pathology and audiology. I always tell them, when you get stuck with something with a parent, I want you to think of this. I want you to think, how would I react if I were this parent? Before you say anything and before you um, start giving your knowledge of what you want them to and how are you going to say it? How does it sound? You know, practice in front of a mirror. And say what you're going to say and then look at yourself and say, gee, how would I feel if I were told yeah. that? Yeah, I think, you know, I had a wonderful counseling class in grad school, but it was very much related to like end of life. You know, your patient has a stroke or, you know, now they're on a feeding tube. So it was very much end of life. And I so badly wish that there was 
more beginning of life because, you know, this child has their whole life ahead of them. But at this point in time, we have no idea what that looks like. You know, so I wish that, that we did have more counseling skills on how to talk, you know, to parents like the road's going to be a little bit different, but, you know, we're still going to, you know, work towards making progress. So that's right. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. Is there any, any other final thoughts you got? I can't think of any right. right now, but it's been a pleasure. I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with yes, you. Yes, thank you so much, Ruth. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.